Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access to not only our great daily newsletters, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. A reminder that if you like this podcast, subscribers get an ad-free version of the show every Monday. That's four full days before the public release. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me is my good friend Jin Yumi, president for life of the Nashville chapter of the Jiang Zemin fan club. And my condolences if this latest, <laughs> I think it's like the 19th report or rumor of his passing, turns out this time to be true. Uh, anyway, yeah, condolences, man. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? Kaiser, if, if you believe that the dearest elder, the Toad King, has died, I don't really know what to say, except that you are too simple, too naive. <laughs> <laughs> Me, me and Justin Trudeau, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, well, today we are very pleased to have as a guest Yuan Yang, a reporter for the Financial Times, now based in London, but who for many years was stationed in Beijing. Yuan now covers the China-Europe relationship, and that will be the focus of our conversation with her. Yuan Yang, welcome to Seneca at last. Yes, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. A, a warm welcome to you, Yuan. Before we jump in, maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself. You were born in China and spent your early childhood there, but moved to the UK while still quite young. Is is that right? That's right. I was born in China. I lived with my grandparents, who are from the southwestern province of Sichuan, until I was four years old, and then I came with my parents to the UK. And they were part of this wave of early 1990s uh, students and academics who were trying to basically get as far away from China as possible. <laughs> the feeling is familiar. So, how did you make your way into journalism, and what has your focus as a reporter been over the years? My path into journalism has not been straightforward. So I studied economics. The first thing I did, uh, more or less, after university was. In the campaigning world, actually, I set up an NGO called Rethinking Economics, uh, which tries oh, wow. to improve economics education. And from there, I went into economics journalism and then into China journalism. And I've always loved writing and storytelling uh, ever since I could write. And I remember very clearly when I learned to write English at the age of six, it was all kind of Beatrix Potter-esque books, uh, short stories about rabbits and small farmland animals. I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with the grand tradition of Beatrix Potter we have in uh, Northern England. Oh, yeah. Um, and, my, and my grandparents were quite influential in, I think, that love of storytelling because there was, there was, there was such a strong oral storytelling tradition, folk storytelling tradition that they, that they really emphasized. So to cut a long story short, I became a journalist with the FT in 2016 and was posted to Beijing where I covered the economy and then the technology sector and then became the deputy bureau chief, took care of the bureau during the COVID years. And I moved back to London a few months ago in the summer. Ah, okay. I, I, I really started to take notice of your writing during your time as the, the tech reporter at FT. I had a keen interest in that, of course. That was about, what, six years ago. Uh, and you had a, quite a good run there, I think. Uh, I, I, I thought you really got it. And, um, you had some, I think, very original angles of that were quite different. Uh, the, the, the take that was pretty refreshing compared to a lot of the reporting that was coming out of China at that time. Um, can you talk about some of the pieces from that period that you were particularly proud of or that you found maybe really challenging to report out? Yeah, and can I tell you how I became the, the tech reporter, which was itself a bit of a happenstance story? Oh, for sure. I walked into the bureau one day and I said to my colleague, I was then Deputy Bureau Chief Lucy Hornby, who has done amazing reporting on corporate scandals in China. Oh, yeah. I love Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> we, all love, we all love Lucy. I said to Lucy, have you seen what's happened to the price of Bitcoin? It's crazy. And this is during, uh, this is around 2016-17, the uh, Bitcoin price explosion um, at the time was considering, I will not confirm or deny uh, whether I used it to get pound sterling into China. Um, but I was I was you know, curious about this and many other internet subcultures. And Lucy was like, 
Yuan, if you care about that kind of stuff, you should just write about it. <laughs> um, and I think it was a marker of, I think, maybe generational shifts in newsrooms in terms of attention to consumer tech in particular um, and interest in, in tech uh, issues. Because at that time in 2016, um, even though, of course, you know, we know, and particularly in hindsight, the huge explosion in China's internet tech giants, Alibaba and Tencent and so on, it was not a, a major story then, I would say, in the, in the news. And it became a really major story for the next few years. What I want to emphasize there is that the rise of consumer tech in China and particularly the internet giants uh, was a story that I think you know, hit many by surprise because for a long time we were covering Chinese companies not thinking of them as stories in their own right, in terms of their own success and their own scale. And China's tech giants, uh, be that Alibaba or Huawei, I think really changed the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 2016 to me was really the inflection point. It was the moment when we went from mm-hmm. sort of dismissively regarding Chinese tech companies as just mere copycats, incapable of, of anything really original, to suddenly realizing, oh my God, they're, they're- eating our lunch. Yeah. I think the theme that I've covered in various different stories is about trying to uncover the dysfunction that's often within the Chinese uh, system and within Chinese tech policy. Often we hear the opposite, which is Western commentators overemphasizing the successes of the Chinese uh, system and its technological achievements in terms of t- in terms of control. So. For example, one story I did during the pandemic was looking at the ways in which lots of different data gathering and surveillance efforts within the government were not joining up because different provinces were not sharing the data with each other, meaning that they weren't tracking people potentially carrying the virus when they moved over provincial borders. Different agencies have always tried to kind of hog data for themselves hmm. and not been had the incentives to be generous with with sharing with other departments. Sometimes they can't share it just because of basic differences in the way that they format and arrange the data. And so while there are obviously huge ambitions uh, in the Chinese government to be able to surveil and to be able to make all data cohesive, those efforts are really very piecemeal and very difficult to enforce. So I always try in my reporting to try to paint both the kind of successes, but also the uh, failures of of Chinese technological uh, policy. And I think that's a much uh, more uh, objective view than to be overly excited about the successes of what is from afar seen as a monolithic, technically proficient state. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, and we do toggle between these two modes where we either completely underestimate or completely are breathless and over overhyped about China's, you know, technological prowess. So yeah, it's really great to to read all that balance. I think it goes for many of the uh, achievements or ambitions, let's say, of the Chinese government and Chinese local governments. We forget that a lot of the material that we consume about China is local governments or Chinese initiatives basically blowing their own trumpet. They're telling the state media in China, look at our achievements, they're so great, we're going to be able to to control all of this by 2025 or whenever. These are the ambitions. And too often, um, as I think happened, for example, with social credit, a lot of social credit reporting, that's reported uncritically as the actual achievements of the state. But in, in fact, it's all PR. It is a form of propaganda to say, look at how much power we have and how effective we're being. And the stated ambitions often fall much short of reality. Absolutely. It's kind of like the bumper grain harvest. We all know that that story is is nonsense. But when it comes to the surveillance abilities of the Chinese state, we will we'll, we'll believe anything. Right. That's very true. And that's a double standard that we should be uh, concerned about in terms of you know not doing the party's propaganda for it. You know, when a local government says, look at us and our amazing social credit system that we're able to incentivize all kinds of behavior, you know, we shouldn't just swallow that whole and think that that is actually what's happening on the ground. We know that the party lies about many things. It also lies about its own achievements. On the other hand, also not to underestimate the power and control of Chinese surveillance, which even at the kind of messy and disconfigured and you know, chaotic level it is at now does have a huge impact on people's lives. So I think it is really about getting a clear-eyed view of China without making it much more kind of perfect uh, than it is. And that attitude of yours, obviously, is also very applicable to what you're doing now. So let's perhaps shift the discussion. I'd like to ask you first about um, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's recent trip oh, yes. to Beijing and the, the many issues that his government faces from Costco's acquisition of just under a quarter of the port of Hamburg mm. 
to technology exports to human rights issues. Um, as I understand it, there's quite some division in German political circles now about China. One example we recently looked at uh, in our coverage of the Schultz visit was how Chancellor Schultz seems more interested in engagement with China, perhaps, than his colleague, the president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, who called for Germany to reduce lopsided dependencies wherever we can uh, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he particularly called out China. I should remind our American listeners that the chancellor has the real power, not the president. But it seemed to me a good illustration of Germany's political dilemma. And then, of course, you have the German companies, including Volkswagen, which has a plant in Xinjiang, which, which its former CEO mm -hmm. uh, defended, uh, and BMW, which just announced new investments of billions of dollars into electric vehicle plants in China. So how would you characterize the China debate in German elite political and business circles? Mm. Well, firstly, one thing to emphasize is that the German government is, of course, a coalition government, the so-called traffic light coalition. So Schultz has to balance lots of different concerns you know, with, with his coalition partners who may not be on the same page as him personally and even within his own party. And what I think is really interesting within German politics is how all parties, and I think we've seen this to some extent in the UK and in the US, it's all parties, not just one, that have moved significantly more to the hawkish direction about China. Um, one example uh, I'd like to give is the Free Democratic Party, the FDP, who is often uh, historically been the free trade uh, party. So in, you know, in historical terms, they would be pro unlimited trade with China and you know, anti anything uh, that might mean with withdrawal from, from that. Now, they, over the last few years, have also become much more concerned about lack of reciprocity in trade, because now their, their view is not so much that free trade means anybody can sell any, any, anything to anyone, but also, you know, what are you getting from them in return? And do they also allow you the same market access? So in Germany, the most pro-free trade party has now become pretty skeptical about the terms in which Germany trades with China. And I think that's really indicative of a broader set of concerns about reciprocity and equality in the trading relationship with China. Now, in terms of Schultz's trip to China, which, which came very shortly after the, the party congress, which again, once more crowned President Xi as party leader for, for a third term and instilled many of his own yes men even more solidly into, into the, the government and got rid of any uh, opposition that could have been to his policies. There was a concern, I think, in, among German parliamentarians that the optics and the timing of Schultz's visit were really off. Hmm. Why go for less than a day, be surrounded by a COVID bubble that means that you can't really engage with most people face to face, have meetings that are, have to be done over over a video call because of that, and all this, uh, you know, for what? And I, I was quite sympathetic to to those those concerns, and, and particularly to the lack of coordination at a European level of what the first European leader visiting Beijing after the pandemic would say. And you know, there's been reporting in the Politico about this, about how uh, Macron, the French president, had also approached Schultz and tried to negotiate joint messages in a joint meeting. And apparently, according to uh, Politico, Schultz went on regardless. Now, I think that says a lot more about um, European uh, a weakness of European unity than mm -hmm. anything else. In uh, in fact, I think the meeting that Schultz had and the points that he put across were well made, and the obviously the, the prioritized discussion of the war in Ukraine, and uh, President Xi even according to China's own state media readouts, which are generally obviously much more watered down than, than the uh, other parties' readouts. Even they said, you know, we do not see Russia's threat of nuclear war as an appropriate thing to be threatening. And of course, we're completely opposed to nuclear war. This is just in the uh, days after Russia was amplifying its rhetoric about there being uh, the th a, th a threat of a dirty bomb attack from Ukraine, thus right. opening its own you know, path to justify nuclear war in Ukraine. So I think given the actual meetings that happened, the points that Schultz made, um, I think that they were uh, brave and necessary. But everything that led up to the trip, I can completely see why, why he annoyed many members of his own government with it. So would you say that the kind of attitudinal shift that you personally saw uh, 
you know, sort of the, the, the problems running up to the meeting, the, the problems of the optics of the meeting itself, and then the fruit that it seems to have borne. Would you say that that shift was sort of shared among the sort of, you know, German press, um, among the, the German chattering classes? I think for for some, yes, certainly for some of the kind of China policy uh, think tank folks, they you know they saw the the results, and of course Ukraine is still a much higher priority for for the German public than almost anything to do with China on on just on in terms of China itself. Um, it has been really complicated, though. I mean, the, the response has been complicated by the various different approvals and blockages of foreign uh, investment that happened in the days just up to and after the trip. So I think the approval, for example, um, of uh, Costco, the China shipping company, to buy a minority stake in one of the container terminals at the port of Hamburg, that mm-hmm. was that kind of in some ways overshadowed the trip and people I think are still pretty mad about it sometimes um, in the German media um, as and, and was seen as a concession that was made to make the trip uh, easier. This shift in in German attitudes has really kind of closely paralleled uh, shifts that we've seen in the Anglosphere as well. You know, mm-hmm. with uh, popular opinion, if you look at the Pew Global Surveys, uh, Global Attitudes Surveys, uh, it's it's very clearly shifting in the same direction. When I have talked to Chinese diplomats about this phenomenon and sort of pushed them on the same, you know, look, it doesn't seem to be just the United States. Could it be that something that China is doing in the world is making you know much of the developed world really, really, you know? Uh, turning them against China, in, as as it were, uh, they've all, always said, "No, this just speaks mm-hmm. to the discursive power of the American media and and how America can still bully uh, Europe and how the Europeans don't have any meaningful strategic autonomy yet." Uh, what's your sense of this? Do you think that that there's anything to that, or do you think that Germany, for its own reasons, has sort of uh, moved in in that direction? You know, simple explanations are the most persuasive. And so it's much simpler, I think, for Chinese observers to describe the entire uh, of Europe's foreign policy as being uh, US driven, because then you basically have one explanation for like a bunch of countries. Sure. And I do and I do see that uh, that attitude more, more broadly, uh, for example, among Chinese friends of mine, when we talk about the West, and I talk about being a European journalist, sooner or later, they'll end up talking about American journalism rather, you know, and, and or American journalists in China. Um, and so you know, being a European journalist, I think, is also being somewhat in the middle um, of, of uh, that discussion of U.S. and China. So yeah. certainly, you know, the U.S. and people in the U.S. and people in China see the world as being uh, either mono or bipolar in terms of power between the U.S. and China. And Europe is kind of nowhere, nowhere to be seen. So I completely, right. I see where that, that kind of psychology uh, I, I, so I definitely, I definitely recognize that psychology that you you're describing. The thing that uh, that's always fascinated me about looking at China from the European perspective is that uh, for at least a, a long time, it was possible to see sort of a developed world perspective that was free of that kind of obsession with national security. So you could see mm-hmm. kind of a, a less tainted view of China, and you know there were still obviously a lot of problems, but they 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 were kind of separated from national security. But it doesn't seem to be that way anymore, especially if you look at the UK, right? I mean, where now national security yeah. seems to be uh, very much on everyone's lips. And and that's why... Can we put that into a question? Um, and, you know, looking beyond Germany to the whole European Union and uh, the UK post-Brexit, yeah. um, are European countries at all of one mind with respect to U- United States tech policies toward China? And you, you have already mentioned that the European Union isn't very unified <laughs> when it comes to China, but specifically about technology policies and, and the uh, America's attitude. Um, how have the Europeans responded to American efforts to enlist them, you know, the Huawei sanctions, the entity lists related to Xinjiang, and now the uh, foreign direct product rule that was announced in October? Oh, gosh. So I think certain, I think the tech sanctions on, chi- on China and, and, well, U.S. unilateral sanctions uh, in any domain are one thing that get get up the backs of European partners because they know that they will take the hit, their, their companies will take the hit in one of their biggest export markets for policies that they effectively have no control over. And an example of this uh, from a few years ago, when the original Huawei sanctions were being formulated, 
uh, reportedly the the US went to the Vassenaar Agreement countries, which is a mm-hmm. military civil dual use agreement uh, of Europe, uh, convention of European countries. They have to agree by consensus. The US presented its proposal of Huawei sanctions. People didn't agree. It's a consensus organization. It's quite common that people don't agree. And then the US went ahead and did it anyway. And now there's that has led to a further discussion about you know, how do we agree these uh, military, for example, military uh, sanctions. Do we need consensus? What do we? How do? How do we formulate a better way of discussing these issues with the U.S.? But it has seemed that you know, no matter what mechanism it is, whether it's consensus or majority, in the end, the U.S. does get its way by 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 unilaterally issuing them anyway. So, almost you know, the discussion of how Europe comes to agree on sanctions is is almost you know less important than than the fact that the U.S. just really really wants them. Now, with huh. the foreign product rule. Uh, sanctions you're you're referring there to the recent uh, swathe of uh, of of sanctions limiting what chip related technologies can be sold to China, right? And thus yeah. limiting China's future chip development. Now, again, there were background discussions uh, with European partners, also with East Asian partners like Japan and South Korea, uh, because th- those are where the major companies reside, and the world's uh, in some ways one world's most important companies for the chip supply chain lies in Netherlands. It's called ASML and it produces the machines that engrave the the circuit patterns onto onto chips. Right. And that company obviously is hugely exposed uh, to the China market, roughly I think about a tenth uh, or more of its of its sales by now. And that company also has a big interest in exactly, you know, what is the limit of uh, of what of what can be sold, what counts as advanced chips that cannot be sold and so on. So there have been Discussions within the European, um, you know, with European part between European partners and the U.S. And the problem is those discussions are always going to be pretty uh, one-sided because in the end the U.S. will decide and it will decide how much pain it's willing to inflict uh, on its partners. So I think that's I, I do sense a lot of um, discontent with how uh, trading partners are treated as a result of these sanctions. Right. The American uh, Commerce Department uh, also entity listed quite a number of Chinese companies that were associated with surveillance uh, in, in, in Xinjiang. And uh, I'm, I want to turn a little bit to Xinjiang because, you know, several national parliaments in European countries, uh, I believe the, the European Parliament itself, have mm-hmm. since 2017 used very, very strong language about the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Um, have they basically been on board with the American responses Broadly speaking, and and has the EU response been unanimous, or are there cracks in that too? I think at this point there is pretty much consensus within the EU on mm-hmm. the moral problem of Xinjiang and the human rights atrocities there, particularly following the UN report from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which described that, which stated that these atrocities could amount to crimes against humanity, and which reconfirmed the previous reports we've been hearing and writing about mass incarceration, about forced labor transfers, and also uh, about the huge slump in fertility and raised the question of whether there was forced sterilization. The qu- next question is what to do about it. And certainly Shin, uh, and certainly, uh, Uyghur human rights activists have been trying to um, bring legislation and bring campaigns to stop com- countries from importing goods made with slave labor from Xinjiang region. Um, and there is a uh, th- there there are various directives and and bills on this going through both the European Parliament and national governments. And what looks like is going to happen is that the European uh, Parliament is going to come up with a market monitoring instrument. So mm. unlike the U.S. measure, which blocks imports from the region and is is about kind of protecting what goes into the country, um, this is more about this, this measure will be more consumer focused. So it'd be that anybody uh, in the in the European Union who has uh, you know evidence to suspect that the goods that they've bought within the EU have been made with slave labor, then they can bring cases against against companies, and that would also include you know slave labor within the EU. So it's not so much about imports and exports; um, it's it's about forced labor and uh, it's about selling forced labor goods within the EU and that would also include forced labor from Xinjiang. Right, right. So it's not technically country specific, although Xinjiang was clearly the impetus for this. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about 
uh, Huawei, the foreign direct product rule, uh, you know, there's the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Chips uh, and Science Act. Um, and of course, as you've uh, hinted at, um, although these measures are aimed at China, they have consequences for Europe. So what does it look like right now if you're a German company with big export markets in both China and the United States, and you're feeling all of this political pressure over your supply chains? Yeah, I was in Germany a couple of months ago, and I met a, a lot of the business associations in Berlin and Frankfurt. And one of them, which is the uh, VDMA, the the Association of Machinery Makers, they described how for their members, many were really caught in the middle of U.S. sanctions on the one hand, and Chinese suspicion and you know, domestic self-sufficiency drives on the other hand, and we're creating three separate supply chains, like kind of triplicate supply chains. Wow. One for China, which doesn't include US products because the Chinese customers are worried that one day they might not be able to get hold of US products. They don't see that as a, as a stable supply chain. And one for the US, which doesn't include Chinese products because of security concerns from the US side. And the third one for Europe, where it's like, yeah, throw everything in <laughs> and, <laughs> and mix, it, mix it all around. Um, and what's really surprising to me um, is that those companies were just had, have already very much in um, very much already doing this and making plans to to do this further in order to shore up the the security of their supply chains. I think this this kind of action also highlights how what might be in, what might start off as a national security concern or a cybersecurity concern for the U.S. then become, for example, in the case of the Huawei sanctions, then becomes like a supply chain security, a economic and business concern for for Europe and for the rest of the world. Because the, these sanctions from the US just fall from the sky from the point of view of a German company. They have to be as prepared for a new swathe of uh, sanctions on, on high-end high technology as much as they have for you know the COVID disruptions on supply chain and, and slow logistics in China. The, these are parts of the geopolitical weather that they cannot control. And so the way that they can try to control them a little bit is to diversify their, uh, their supply chains around the world. Now that's really hugely costly for many companies, and as a result, the small and well, in, in many in many circumstances, it's the small and medium enterprises in Germany, the the Mittelstand, as as they're called, and much highly valued uh, as a force for uh, economic growth within Germany, who find it much more t much more tough to survive in this geopolitical uncertainty and in the current economic climate and the big companies that are still successfully investing and profiting from China. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. So are they putting any kind of political pressure? Are they trying to sort of lobby through Berlin or through Brussels to try to get Washington to soften a little on that? That's, that's, a, very good, that's a very good question. I get the impression that Businesses already think that the U.S. sanction system is going to carry on rolling. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's not that's almost that's not been the focus uh, of their of their lobbying. Yeah. Opposing sanctions from from the U.S. is also much more of a um, feels much more morally dubious for com for German companies who might you know and see might agree with some of the principles behind the sanctions, but not agree with the extent of the sanctions, etc. Yeah. I mean, sanctions are always a difficult thing to get your head around. I mean, I, I grew up in apartheid South Africa when we had mm. sanctions. And, you know, I, I am very sympathetic to the argument that the sanctions simply reinforced the kind of what we used to call a lager mentality, like, you know, the ox draw, draw inside the ox wagons and uh, that the the, the white government almost used it as a propaganda about the total onslaught of the rest of the world attacking us and that the people who really suffered were, you know, poorer black South Africans. You know, that's an argument that people used to make. And it's and not... they still make in China. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But were they effective? Because I think the South Africa sanctions over apartheid are like are held up as the, you know, the, the standard for effective sanction regimes. They right. are, but I, I always point out that uh, apartheid only collapsed when the Cold War ended and America stopped being interested in, in funding proxy wars in Southern Africa against communist uh, governments. Um, for me, that was a much more, uh, that is the, 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 the big reason, that's the timing, that's why apartheid ended was because the Cold War ended and yeah. there was not going to be any more backing for South Africa. But this is a whole different show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I mean, I, I agree with you on the, on the difficulty of sanctions regimes, even in Xinjiang, for example. The Xinjiang economy has 
has tanked. I mean, as a result, partly of the security lockdown, it's simply very difficult to do trade and business when you can't even go into a shopping uh, center without having all of your bags scanned on your ID taken, right? And Han Chinese people have uh, Han Chinese business people have you know, fled away from that region uh, because of the lack of business opportunities. And the only group of people who cannot leave the tanking economy are Uyghurs and ethnic Muslim minorities who cannot leave. So there is there is a huge issue, there is a huge you know issue around what is the efficacy of sanctions. On the other hand, I agree like consumers um, should be able to a know whether their products are made with slave labor and b choose not to buy products that make moral made. choices absolutely yeah. right right yeah speaking of moral choices so for americans watching what's happened in ukraine since february 24th uh there's been this understandable impulse to you know to immediately draw parallels between russia ukraine to china taiwan uh, have you seen anything like that happening among europeans and and maybe what broadly speaking have European attitudes toward China and its pro-Russian neutrality stance. Uh, yeah. What have those attitudes been like? Has it, has it badly damaged China's standing in Europe? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was in China, which is at the start of the uh, outbreak of war, I would hear about you know, the cons- you know I would hear from afar concerns uh, in Europe whether this was going to repeat itself with China and Taiwan. And I was thinking, you know, is this the case of, you know, only the most pessimistic views get amplified uh, in the media? And therefore, I'm hearing all these you know, doomsday scenarios. When I came back to Europe and started interviewing companies here, those were the scenarios they would bring up to me without me even oh. mentioning Taiwan. Wow. I would say, what are your concerns uh, for the future trade outlook with China? Taiwan is is very much up there, you know, without, uh, you know, even without me putting no it on, on yeah. the agenda. Yeah. And I think that's partly because of the narrative of, dependency, for example, on, on Russian energy in particular, that that is uh, really dominant in, in European discussions about trade right now. There's a whole uh, question of how will Europe continue to fuel itself over the winter and how did Europe allow itself to become so dependent on a country that was cl- clearly not an ally for energy. And I think that's why the question of dependency is then being transposed onto China and Taiwan not just in the event of an invasion of Taiwan disrupting supply chains and so on, but also in the event of deterioration of the political climate in China, of relationships with, with Europe and so on. What else are we dependent on China for? I think the state of this conversation is very frustrating for me right now because I'm the kind of person who likes to see not just a list of complaints with what's wrong with the status quo, but you know some searching for vision for how things might be in the future. And right now we have a lot of cons on the list of you know, what, mm. what, are the, what are the possible scenarios in which trade links with China will be disrupted. But I, I don't see a coherent economic vision for what less or different trade with China would look like. And quite quickly, that will be the future that we slip into just because of the force um, of current uh, economic, not even political uh, forces at play. And so I think we need to understand what does uh, European growth that's not propelled by Chinese exports and Chinese growth look like. So it sounds to me like you don't think there's much chance that the Europe-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment <laughs> will be revived. And so that was, I if I'm anyone. Remember- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anyone who thinks there's much chance of the CAI uh, being revived. But there may be- that, that basically died in 2021, right? That was when it was, it was supposedly going to be ratified in 2020, 2021, and then yeah. it kind of died on the vine. Yeah. Well, the EU's position on that is so long as there are Chinese sanctions against European parliamentarians, which there still are because of the the kind of back and forth sanctions uh, over, over human rights abuses in Xinjiang, then the CAI will not pass through Parliament so long as there are members of Parliament that are still sanctioned. So I think that is a standoff. I don't think either side is, you know, is interested enough in the CAI in itself to, to revive it. Hmm. On a different topic, what has the European reaction to the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden in Bali been like? Are the Europeans feeling a little relieved that we're not about to go to war or uh, what are the optics? I think it's obviously good that President Xi is now back on the international speaking circuit. And in addition to meeting with the uh, German leader, has also met with the leaders of the US, France, Japan and so on. And that in itself, I think, is, offers reassurance that face-to-face meetings can do a lot more than phone calls, which were all that 
uh, we had over the last three years uh, when President Xi was you know, self-isolating along with most of the Chinese leadership. But it really is this it's this kind of the start of the engagement, you know, rather than, than the conclusion. So I think, you know, there's, there's there are, there's no there's no kind of great heartening conclusions to be drawn yet. I will say that both the Chinese state media readouts and the uh, the foreign side, so you know the U.S. or the French or whatever readouts, which are often usually very different because they emphasize completely different things, and the Chinese ones, I'm sure, are much less complete. No, but both right. both versions, both sides' accounts of what happened at those bilateral meetings, try to be quite. Uh, positive and, and diplomatic about areas of cooperation, even with even with the U.S., which strikes quite a different tone to the tone of Chinese media in general about the U.S.-China relationship. So it's a bit like you can be quite, uh, if you're a Chinese uh, media commentator, you can be quite hawkish and quite nationalistic up until your president actually meets with the president of the U.S., in which case you have to then echo like the kind of diplomatic and you know win-win type both sides messaging of that, which I think is actually a good restraint on Chinese media discourse. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. So China has never made a secret of its hopes to see Europe really emerge as a kind of strategically autonomous pole in a multipolar configuration of geopolitics, right? I think Europe uh, has I, that ambition too, no? I think I think people are pretty on board <laughs> no, with that. <laughs> yeah, but but I think, you know, I mean, if you if you look at uh, what's happened since February 24th, I mean, you know, look, prior prior to that, I think you you you're absolutely right, you know, um, you know, European leaders were were not happy about having to to make a choice between Beijing and Washington. Uh, yeah. but you know, since the 20 February 24th, I mean, I think anyone recognizes that even if this winter gets really cold, there's, there may be cracks, but there's not going to be gigantic fissures between, you know, in the transatlantic alliance system, right? Uh, it's not going to be a total rupture. I mean, so if I were in Beijing and I were looking at this and nurturing hopes, you know, that Europe might become more meaningfully autonomous, I guess yeah. I would pin my hopes on 2024. Uh, I mean, I, I would look, I would be thinking, gosh. Yeah. All the European capitals must be looking at that race and thinking, "Oh my God, if another Trump or even you know DeSantis sort of Trump light comes into office, you know what's going to happen to American support for Ukraine? What's going to happen to tariffs on European goods?" Um, so I wonder what how, what these scenarios look like right now uh, when viewed from European capitals. Um, you know, the departure of Trump and the advent of Biden has done great things for the. You know, optimism from Europe in transatlantic partnerships. Right. But I do think that there is a broader uh, concern around the stability of that partnership. You know, even without Trump right now, he will run for office again, um, you know, regardless of, of how likely that is. There is a threat. Basically, I think that the EU is, has been burnt by the Trump presidency and that will last a lot longer than Trump's you know, own influence on politics does because right. it highlights how fickle um these partnership the american partnership can be under a change of under, under a change of president i think that the ukraine war has of course brought together um the rest of europe and united it in tackling a common uh, enemy and that is something i think that the chinese uh, are uh, trying to grapple with and trying to understand and almost i think there's a there's almost i think an attitude in beijing of you know wariness about the about the durability of European unity over Ukraine. Um, one, uh, one scholar was telling me about how there are now Chinese diplomats visiting European countries, not to have formal meetings with their opposite uh, sides, but to gather information on essentially like how, how far the European unity project can go, how disgruntled are the Europeans in this, hmm. you know, at the start of this long winter that's ahead of us, um, almost as if to to try and test the hypothesis that Europe will eventually, you know, despite the unity now that Europe will eventually crumble because of its problems with, with imports uh, of energy and grain and so on. Right. So right, right. certainly China is holding its breath for the European unity project to fall apart. And are the Europeans hedging at all? I mean, are they not? Are they sort of reluctant to burn bridges with China in case the GOP does come back into power in 2024? I don't think that people see it as playing the U.S. off against China or China as kind of an insurance policy 
against the US because China cannot help Europe in terms of you know security and defense uh, in sure. the, the US. The US could I, I don't think that they're comparative in that way. It's, it's more that there are like two really hard realities going on. One is that uh, many European economies, although not, not all, Lithuania is not that dependent on China. Um, <laughs> Apparently not. Are, are, are in are, are uh, very much tied to China's uh, growth. And those and and those economies, the you know, exports have already taken a hit because of the COVID economic slowdown in China and so on. So that that that's already a you know a point that's in crisis right now. I wouldn't say this is anticipation of a future crisis. I think the economically, the the crisis of of trade with China has already arrived for Europe. And then on the on the other hand, there are the the rise of China uh, in terms of uh, new energy vehicles in terms of green technology has also uh, caused uh, both the EU and the US to say, okay, we need to think about our own industrial policy and we need to think about our own technological leadership. And that has led to policies like the Inflation Reduction Act in part, um, which tries to increase US domestic innovation in certain green sectors, including in electric vehicles. Now that then creates a situation where, the, where Europe is like, well, China has industrial strategy. The U.S. has industrial strategy. Do we need an industrial strategy? And there has right. been there's been a resurgence of uh, industrial strategy, which for a long time was a you know was a, a taboo for free marketers in in the European Union. Hmm. The '90s are truly dead, huh? Mm-hmm. Let's move to the United Kingdom and talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, as I understand it, during the course of his business and political life, he hasn't been particularly consistent on China. He has in the past advocated for stronger trade ties. Uh, yeah. But at least since he first tried to become Prime Minister when he was competing with Liz Truss, he jumped on the get tough on China bandwagon very quickly. Yeah. Uh, this week, his tone seemed uh, his tone on China seemed to soften again. Uh, what do you make of him and where he might take UK-China relations? So the get tough on China bandwagon is, I would say, like the easiest bandwagon to jump on. It's moving very slowly. There's not much of a barrier to entry. You can just get on it without any <laughs> expertise. Just walk onto it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a very it's a very open access bandwagon. Um, <laughs> and and so you know, genuinely, I think that's part part of the reason why China, from you know, from a few years ago, almost being not really mentioned in parliamentary politics in the UK, has become. Uh, such a topic uh, of discussion and debate in almost every foreign in every foreign affairs committee meeting, China will, will come up. I think the social dynamics of this is quite interesting as well because for a long time, obviously, the relationship with the EU was the foreign policy issue that dominated British politics. And after the Brexit referendum, there's been a huge kind of reconfiguration within the Conservative Party. You know, half of it which was, was pro-Brexit, half of which was anti-Brexit, of you know, what would the new foreign policy stance look like? And is there a foreign policy that we can agree on, given how much our party disagrees on internally about the European Union? So it turns out, yes, there is a policy that everyone can agree on, not just within the Conservative Party, but more widely, which is the uh, China bashing bandwagon. So that, um, I, th- I think, because of the amount of consensus on on China's skepticism within the government, it's very it's become very much a, a during the conservative leadership debate earlier this year, um, became a kind of one-upmanship competition between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, <laughs> uh, the two contenders who each had their turn, in fact, in in becoming in being uh, prime minister for a short while. So that's I think that describes a bit why uh, Sunak seems inconsistent in retrospect because. Uh, because of tacking kind of much more to the right in terms of uh, China hawkishness during the leadership uh, hustings. Um, there are obviously legitimate concerns behind the hawkishness that's appeared. And in, in some ways, it's almost like the UK is catching up for you know, a decade of being quite complacent about its relationship with China by having like this kind of really concentrated three months of, of China skepticism. Make um, up for the golden, the failed golden <laughs> era under David Cameron. Yeah. Oh, poor yeah. David Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> Yen, this has been fantastic. I, I want you to ask, actually, <clears throat> Yen, this has been fantastic. I want you to uh, talk about the new book that you're working on, which I understand is about social mobility in the post-80s generation, I guess the rough equivalent of China's millennials. Uh, uh, tell tell us about that insofar as you are able. Yes, 
this is the manuscript that I've handed in in July. Oh, I started my uh, my my current role as Europe China correspondent, um, and we're in the uh, great old revisions process right now. And it'll be published probably in early 2024 by Bloomsbury in the UK and Penguin Viking in the US. It, as you as you mentioned, it's about uh, it's broadly about social mobility for the post 80s and 90s generation, i.e. Mm. my generation, i.e. the generation that grew up after the reform and opening up period that witnessed both the boom and then the slowdown of the capitalist experiment in China, which is still, I would say, an experiment. Um, the the impetus behind the the book partly was to capture certain stories of women I got to know very well while I was based in China for six years, um, and you know among my friendship group in uh, in Beijing and in, in in other parts of China, I've seen quite amazing um, stories of mobility. You know both. Uh, you know, rises and falls mm. of people born into pretty uh, extreme po- in poverty in, in the 80s or 90s, who then made it to the capital uh, of people who were born in uh, into you know, middle class um, city life, and then who who gave it away for political reasons. And so it's, so it is about social mobility, but it's not, um, it's not a book uh, written as a kind of economics text. It's a book written more like a novel, and it follows uh, these women's lives in a narrative style um, across across their lives. Well, I hope we will be your first stop uh, once you get the the, uh, the book published, and that you'll come back on the a program to talk about it. And I really look forward to reading it. I'm sure it will be great. Thank you. I hope so too. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I'm just really looking forward to that book. And um, do you have a working title for it yet? The title is Private Revolutions. Ah, I like that. Private Revolutions, really good. That's layered, a very layered. Indeed, indeed. Um, so let's move on to recommendations. But first, Jeremy, give us a plug. All right. Um, my appeal is very simple. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the China Project Access to get an ad-free version of this show every Monday, four days before the public release. Your ears will thank you for it. You will also get access to all of our other great content and our newsletters. Yay, yay. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start? Sure. So this week, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, the comedian, has been in a bit of trouble for some remarks he made on Saturday Night Live about Jews. And I just want to recommend, if you want to hear some really rude things about Jews, there's this incredible comedy special by Ari Shafir. Who who does it? (laughs) As an Orthodox Jew. And it's simply called Jew, and it's free on YouTube, and it's wonderful. Yeah, right. So, So... Anti-Semitism originating from Jewish people is okay, huh? Is it's that what not you're actually anti-Semitism. Know, it's called I'm humor. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's fine. It meets with your your have to approval. So, okay. All right. His name is Ari Shafir. You said yes. All right. We'll check it out. I will. <laughs> Yen, what do you have for us? Can I have two recommendations, or is there only one? Absolutely, no. Two's fine. Two recommendations. Yeah. Okay, so one uh, piece of music. Emily Wells is an American uh, composer and multi instrumentalist, and she is currently on her European tour uh, to play her most recent album called "Regards to the End." She is a really kind of multi genre uh, composer, so I find it very difficult to summarize what she does. It's like a mixture of kind of orchestral pop, R and B, and all of it is done. Um, by her solely. So when she's performing on stage, which I saw a couple of weeks ago in London, um, she's playing the violin, singing, uh, looping herself, playing the keyboard, and even playing her own drums um, to kind of weave this super kind of multi-layered um, uh, music. And wow. she came. She came in. Her, her her kind of early career was as a classical violinist, and she's now, I guess, producing more. I, I guess in the pop genre. Um, but uh, it's incredibly satisfying to listen to because it just feels like there are so many, you know, it, it feels like it wakens you on many, many different layers. I think she's just an amazing composer. So that's a musical rec- recommendation. Her name is Emily Wells. Fantastic. And my book recommendation is another, uh, my book recommendation is going to be a classic um, of science fantasy, and that's Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. I recently read *The Dispossessed*, which is about well, it's partly it's partly about interplanetary travel. It's also about two different planets with two different civilizations. Very broadly, you can call one a communist um, and one capitalist, and about a scientist who travels from one to the other and starts to 
realize that the kind of home truths that they grew up with in their own country, in their own civilization about what capitalism or communism meant um, are completely um, different to what they what they find in the other country. Oh, great. I mean, I love I love the Earthsea trilogy. I haven't read Dispossessed yet. I'll, I'll put it on my list right away. Yeah, so these are more like, um, Earthsea I also really love, but so like in Ursula Le Guin's more like adult fiction, there's the series that, that includes The Dispossessed. Um, and she has a lot of, um, yeah, adult fiction. Although, you know, who are we to question the line between ch- children's and adult fiction? That's what I always say. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like this whole, oh, that's just a YA novel. Yeah. Um, my my other recommendation, uh, actually I'm saving it for another show that I'm taping later, is for something that's sometimes dismissed as YA, but is actually just a great novel. So thanks. Those are great recommendations. Emily Wells, I'll definitely check that her out too. She sounds fantastic. Um, I have two recommendations as well. One is a website uh, and one is a TV series. The website is called mongulai.com, M-O-N-G-U-L-A-I.com. It's an e-commerce site where you can buy all sorts of artisanal crafts and other products made in Mongolia. Um, wolf tail, fur hats, and Mongolian boots, both of which I just recently purchased. As, as well. <laughs> no, are I you, did. Are, are, are I, you becoming a cosplayer, Kaiser? Uh, yeah, I thought something like that. And a deal. I got a deal on a deal. D-E-E-L, you know, those Mongolian traditional garbs. Uh, this one looks really cool. It'll keep me warm in the winter. Um, you know, traditional belts and quivers and bow cases and saddles and even they've got like yurts or, or gears. Uh, Kaiser, apparently, I, feel, I think you're one of the few Americans who can pull off this look. Uh, yeah, no, I think I can. I, I'm pretty sure I can. I've, I've done it before. The, the the bows that are on sale, by the way, don't don't buy those. I, I, I asked around and, <laughs> and it sounds like they're terrible. I don't recommend those. But the rest of the stuff looks great. Uh, I have this great pair of boots that I, I got um, that, that came from them. It's mongulai.com. Check it out. My um, other recommendation is for a show on Netflix called Barbarians. In, in German, it's Barbarian. Uh, are you maybe detecting a theme here, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is actually about the A Germanic- middle-aged man cosplaying <laughs> right, right, as exactly. a, a Han. Yeah, I, I, I get it. This is, this is actually about- Some people uh, buy Ferraris. Other right, people, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm just like LARPing or something like that. Um, this is this is actually about the Germanic tribes fighting Roman expansion in, in the time of Tiberius. Uh, so the first season is actually focused on uh, the German leader Arminius, who just has the most amazing story. I remember reading about him when I was young. Uh, he was the he was you know uh, sent as a as a a uh, hostage to Rome in, in his early childhood and grew up in Rome kind of as a Roman, but then went back and then ended up leading the German tribes in that very famous battle of Teutoburg Forest where they ambushed a, a, a couple of legions actually under Varus and they completely wiped them out. Um, and then the second season, that's where it culminates in this Teutoburg Forest battle. So the second season is about sort of the, the, the Romans pushing back under Germanicus. Uh, so I actually pulled out my old copy of Tacitus and, and was checking about uh, Germanicus. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's an amazing period of history. Um, it's 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 one one thing that I really loved about it is that the Germans speak German. That's not surprising, but the Romans speak Latin. I mean, it's it's all subtitled, of course, but they speak Latin, and it's 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 kind of amazing. I've never seen that in in a show before. So, One of um, the few few instances of uh, employment for a Latin a live Latin interpreter. Exactly right. I mean, That's <laughs> you get a know. bunch of priests, yeah. but it's it's really cool. It's really cool. Check it out. I just finished it last night. Um, the second season, very very good. All right, thanks so much, Jeremy. Great to, to see you again. Yeah, As likewise, always. and thank and, you, Jan. That was fascinating. Yeah, Jan, thank you so much. That was really f- fantastic. Thanks. Thank you for having me on. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at The China Proj and be sure to check out all the shows in The Seneca Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.